Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. This is Dick Drobnik, the director of USC's one-year mid-career international MBA program, and we're on the sidelines of the 30th annual Asia-Pacific Business Outlook, and I'm having the, the privilege and the fun to be interviewing a former mid-career international MBA student of mine and a business leader in Southeast Asia. Paul Wilson is the managing director of Myanmar Capital Advisors. Welcome, Paul, to the iBear Business Class podcast series. Well, thank you very much, Dick, and I'm delighted to be here. As he said, 30 years, it's, a, it's an enduring program, and I'm happy to have been uh, a part of that since uh, 1993, 94, when I was a student here and participated as a student. Um, let me start with the, 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 the latter part of the question, which is the, the transition really from uh, a successful military career as a company-grade officer um, and then moving into business in a more complex uh, environment in Southeast Asia. But it was really the transition from a, from a classroom environment where I was um, every day immersed and engaged with different cultures uh, of people who had... Were, were these different than the U.S. Army culture? Oh, completely different. I, there were, the commonality was... Uh, I think from a, a military culture in a leadership position was that uh, there's a degree of empathy that's required uh, to get people's collaboration, trust, uh, and then working in alignment to achieve a goal. And then working with classmates, seven Indonesians, seven Japanese, and so on, we had a very, very rich class. Um, but I think what was really interesting for me, and uh, I touched on the theme of self-confidence, working with Indonesians, Thais, Koreans, Japanese, and knowing that the same attributes, the same uh, personal skills that I had acquired in the military, that some of those were also very uh, uh, relevant to developing trust and confidence in my classmates and then taking that into a business environment in Southeast Asia. Okay, tell us a little bit about the what your company does in in uh, Myanmar, and after that, something about the business environment and how it's changing. So my my uh, experience in Myanmar and the, the the advisory services that I performed was really with with a single objective: it was to help uh, multinationals or foreigners uh, successfully navigate a somewhat complex and opaque business environment in Myanmar. Now. I moved back to Myanmar in 2012, a few months before the U.S. government changed its policy. So I was a bit fortunate in that three months after arriving, there was planes were full, media articles were uh, really uh, talking about the exciting opportunities in Myanmar. But it was my second tour, if you will, in Myanmar. I had been there earlier for, for three years, so I knew enough about Myanmar. Again, had made some good friends, business contacts, people that I could trust, understood the culture. But my first role when I, when I moved back to Myanmar in 2012 and I set up my company was really to, to work with foreigners and I realized that there was three things that I had acquired as competencies in my professional career. Number one is I knew how to engage the government. Uh, I knew how to either sell to the government or play an advisory role to the government. I knew how to sell and to do business development 
And I also knew how to work with local partners. I knew how to evaluate them, to conduct due diligence, and to make recommendations. So those three competencies are really industry neutral. They can cut across any industry sector. So I became, and I was one of the few guys who had a track record in Myanmar. I knew, knew something about getting things done there, and I had some success there. So I was very selective in my clients. I would take six or nine month engagements and basically be the internal startup country manager for a new venture. What, what about the change in the political environment uh, in, in Myanmar? If there, I mean, from the outside, it looks like there's mm-hmm. a change. And it looks like the lady is in charge. And is that a good thing for the business environment? Um, is, is she making progress with, with uh, opening things up to make uh, it more attractive for Burmese to play, play business and for uh, Americans in particular to, to be there? Well, I think that the political change is real. In November of 2015, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, won a landslide a parliamentary victory, which uh, then enabled uh, the party to select a president. She's not uh, allowed by the Constitution, as it's currently written, to become the president, but she has a role of state counselor, which she effectively puts her in charge. So she's very much leading the government. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing for the country, for the people to have hope and aspiration um, that, and that things are really changing. And it's really important to note too that the military actually took some very positive steps to enable this change. There's all sorts of speculation on why that was. but um, So I think that there are some of the uh, previous regime, uh, some of the, the mid-ranking uh, officers uh, who actually deserve some credit. And this is not just my opinion, but Priscilla Clapp, who was the deputy chief of mission when I was there, and she's still very current, uh, I think holds the same view. Um, the, the challenge that the Myanmar government has... In I'm sorry, Paul, when you say junior level, do you mean people at the rank of colonel? or do you mean Rank of colonel, yes. Okay. So, so it's not the people top military had, general. people that had troops under their control. Precisely, Dick, and that's the exact... Uh, point that it really should be made is that I think that the Cyclone Nargis, which was several years earlier, really showed the uh, in, incompetence and impotence of the of the country to actually respond to a crisis and to help the people. And I think that was a glaring uh, view for people at the mid-levels, the troops, to see that their current rulers uh, were corrupt, they weren't effective, they weren't helping the people, and that really, I, in my opinion, set the set the path for change, and then it was a matter of architecting what would be the change. So the, the elections were held, the uh, president was, was appointed to vice presidents, one who was a former military person, another is uh, ethnic, Chin, Christian, very interesting choice. And uh, now the challenge that the government has uh, is putting laws and, and uh, regulatory frameworks in place to attract foreign investment. Now, the country has so much going for it. It's, it's a population of 55 million. It's, it's situated between China and India and Southeast Asia. It has a coastline that's longer than Vietnam. It's rich in natural resources, offshore gas, onshore oil, uh, gold, copper, jade, timber. Uh, it was the rice bowl of Southeast Asia in the 1950s. So it, it, you had to try really hard to get things wrong, and that's what two successive dictators they, did. Nguyen was successful. Nguyen and Tan Shui, who's, who's, who's still, still around. Um, but I think that, so there has been also, there's been trading relationships with South, Southeast Asia, just because the U.S. had not been engaged in trade in, 
and business, it doesn't mean that Southeast Asia had not. So it's not as if it was a, an entirely closed economy. It was closed largely to the West. The decisions that even the previous administration had made on opening up certain industry sectors and the process of which they undertook has been remarkable in a very positive way. The telecommunications sector is a, is a very good example. The government outsourced the tender process to a German consulting firm that's very well regarded internationally. The running odds were that the winners of this, of the two licenses, and there was 98 countries, companies that had actually uh, uh, registered to be, to be uh, uh, competitive for this. The running odds were that if you weren't connected with a local crony and you weren't from Southeast Asia, then there's no way you're going to get a telecom license. Lo and behold, the two that were selected uh, had no local partners. One was Telenor, 51% owned by the Norwegian government, and the other was the Qataris under their brand Uridu, which again is controlled by the Qatari government. So the process was transparent. The questions and answers and specifics were, were, were all very uh, done, done very transparently. Um, the, the foreign direct investment law has been passed. A new one has been passed as the second one, and it was passed on the 1st of January. Uh, the laws related to land policy, the laws related to uh, the insurance sector, the financial services sector, are all progressing in a very uh, positive way. The, the development agencies, the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, uh, JICA, uh, COTRA, all of these different uh, trade and development agencies, uh, not only from the West uh, but from Asia, they have an open door. The Myanmar government is listening to them. They're actually undertaking uh, some very difficult measures. And it was interesting to see three years ago when the first foreign investment law, the first version of it was being drafted, there was a lot of pushback from local business interests. They were trying to push back and have policies that were much more protectionist in nature. Even the previous administration, which was the, the former ruling party, push back on the local business interests, recognizing that there's a tremendous amount of catch-up that needs to take place. So sanctions, U.S. sanctions being lifted in October of 2016 provides yet another boost. Um, there are challenges, as there are with any, any, any uh, emerging market, and I just heard uh, uh, George uh, Drysdale speak about uh, the challenges they have and how patience is required, and I really subscribe to that. But, I would say that uh, the change is real, uh, the lady is very much in charge, the tough work of writing policies and regulatory frameworks, the real technical aspects of creating an environment where foreigners want to come and invest is all underway. Now can it be done faster, could it be done more efficiently, yes, but uh, they've had remarkable progress and to note, things haven't, they haven't had major missteps yet. What about the, the tribes, the minorities, the, the Kachins, the Shans, the Chins? Uh, has peace effectively been negotiated and implemented, or is there still fighting in some areas? It's, it's an excellent point. Myanmar has 135 different ethnic groups, and the first peace process uh, to really try to bring something of a unified state uh, was back in 1947. Uh, and the the, English, the lady's father, the did, lady's not survive, father she, did not survive that effort. She did not, sur he did he not didn't. survive, that's right. And so, um, and even in that conference, 
not all the ethnic groups were invited to the table. This was orchestrated by the English, who were rapidly pulling out of Southeast Asia post-World War II, and did somewhat of a sloppy job at that. But um, it's a challenge, and this is where the relationship between Aung San Suu Kyi as a political leader and the military, who have a vested interest in trying to keep some kind of a control or structure in place. And it's important also that many of these ethnic groups don't really look at the majority Burman ethnic group with a lot of trust. There are generations of mistrust. Um, three of the major ethnic groups actually have closer ties to the People's Republic of China than they do with the central government of Myanmar. Which groups are those? The Pao, Kachin, uh, and the Wa, uh, and there are probably a couple of others, but these are groups that have been, uh, have been very independent. They've never really been under any central government control. Uh, in their perspective, they have to look after their own people. In some cases, that means they're in businesses that are Ill illicit or illegal. could be illegal jade, illegal lagering, in some cases, uh, production of opium and, and poppy uh, to be converted to heroin. So um, it's a real challenge. Uh, uh, da Suu Kyi was, uh, was actually visiting some of the ethnic groups. Uh, in the last Union Day, and that was an overture to make sure that uh, they understood that she recognizes their importance. So the national ceasefire is the very first step. Um, they've had all but three ethnic groups have signed up for the national cease, ceasefire. The real, the real challenge is that the, the military would like to see these ethnic groups who are very well armed to be converted to border guards under the control and authority of the military. And that's very difficult if you've been engaged in the Civil War for 30 or 40 or 50 years, that's very difficult. So, but what she is recognizing, what each one of the state and governors, there's 14 states and regions, uh, and in the Shan state, for example, the governor of the Shan state is Shan, and the same thing with Kaya and Kachin and so on. The government realizes- Elected or appointed? They are uh, elected, elected. And they, um, but they recognize a need for development. So I think the development agencies also are very keen to see this uh, inclusive economic growth, that not all of the investment comes into Yangon, that it goes to some of the areas, the Chin State, which is the poor state, it's to the west. So it's a tremendously uh, uh, difficult job, but I think that the commitment of foreign investors, um, I think the commitment of the U.S. government and U.S. companies uh, is, is important. In fact, across the board, whether that you're a local company or whether you're a, a poor uh, ethnic community, the U.S. companies are actually are looked at really with a much higher degree of, uh, of confidence. There is a perception that the American companies will do the right thing as, as it relates to the environment, uh, labor, uh, teaching, governance, and accounting, and basic business principles that will strengthen the, the local companies. Uh, last question, Paul. Can you tell us something about what looks like terrible, terrible stuff in the Rakhine province? And, and is it as bad as it looks on the news? And is there a path out of this negative terrible process. So uh, it's, it's, it's terrible and I think honestly what you would see in the media is an accurate uh, reflection of the situation on the ground. Um, many uh, uh, former citizens of Bangladesh over many years uh, have 
uh, migrated into the Rakhine state. And these are uh, uh, the Muslims, they're, they're from a Rohingya uh, ethnic group, as they're called. Um, and the real challenge is that they are uh, really disliked almost by every ethnic group. And it's oh, very so not disturbing. not just the Burmans? Not just the Burmans, wow. no. You can talk to a Kachin, Chin, Kayin, and they really have uh, uh, this very, very um, negative uh, feeling toward, toward, uh, toward the Rohingya. Um, and, and how many million Rohingya are there? I believe there is, uh, there is probably on the order of 500,000 to a million. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but the, um, the, 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 the Rakhine state, uh, there are uh, Buddhist people from Rakhine who also have a, just a dire uh, situation with respect to economic development, education. They've been neglected by the, the central union level government as well. And so that's some of, the, some of the, the, the opinions that they have that why is the world concerned about these, these Muslim people who several generations ago came from a different country and they shouldn't be here. We have our own dire situation. And, and there is some, some sense that maybe there is the a dark hand in all of this, that the instability, uh, people um, trying to uh, spark unrest, discord, might allow for a continued role, for recognition military. for the military to make sure that peace uh, and law and order and stability is maintained. But it's a, it's a terrible situation. I think that there's a lot of criticism toward Aung San Suu Kyi, that she's been too quiet about this. Um, the counter to that is that she has to maintain uh, the support of her people, most of which who have no positive feelings toward the Rohingya, but from a, certainly from a U.S. policy perspective, it's something that has to be addressed. She has appointed, uh, requested, and, and, and Kofi Annan has accepted a role in a commission to try to understand this more deeply, try to understand all the different stakeholders' views on this, but it's something that uh, certainly needs to be addressed. Okay, one last question for you. No, no, it's a, it's a request. It's an order. <laughs> Captain, <laughs> Captain, recruit one or two up-and-coming Burmese to, to come join iBear. I accept that challenge and we'll execute. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Ernestine. Business Class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite. <laughs>